Yeah, amen to that. Good morning, church. It is good to see you this morning. If we are able, in fact, to see you in the room with us, and I'm glad you're with us. If you're online in our live stream, uh, welcome. Glad that we can turn our minds and hearts to the glory of the Lord and to set ourselves under uh, the truth of his word this morning. Uh, I just think about all of the things that have been profoundly and deeply uncertain for us in this year, 2020. Um, What good news it is that we can be certain that God has been with us in the person of his son, that he continues to be with us in the person of his spirit And he will one day be with us again when Christ returns and brings us into the full measure of his presence in eternity. These are the things that we need to think about, that we need to set our minds and hearts toward this morning. And I'm glad that we can. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you, I would just encourage you uh, to land there this morning. Um, This week, I was wasting a little bit of time and a few brain cells online, and um, I stumbled upon the collection of Christmas playlists that were curated by the good folks at Apple Music. And I was just curious by, you know, this whole category of Christmas playlist at Apple Music. Um, I was curious because it wasn't a, a group of holiday playlists, which is kind of what I expected. They were, in fact, a group of Christmas playlists. But still, I just really wanted to know for a few minutes, you know, what the savants over at Apple Music really considered to be, like, Essential Christmas Songs. And so I found the one that was called Essential Christmas, the songs that define the season. And I just wondered what the people at Apple Music thought really defined the season of Christmas. Now, I didn't really expect much, um, and I didn't find anything that I didn't expect. Um, Certainly, there was very little, if anything at all, said about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Very little, if anything, said about the second person of the divine trinity putting on human flesh and coming to live and dwell among us. No, I mean, there was a lot of exactly what you would expect. A lot of Frank Sinatra and Justin Bieber and Natalie Cole and Dolly Parton and Alvin and the Chipmunks made an appearance and so did Ariana Grande. And if you just perused that playlist, right, there was a lot of time spent rocking around a Christmas tree and watching Mommy Kissing Santa Claus and there was even some Santa Baby and All I Want for Christmas is You. I shudder a little bit when I think about that one in particular, but there was precious little about what we would consider to be essential to the Christmas season. Now, I, for one, love Christmas music. To me, Christmas music is essential to our celebration of this particular holiday of the coming of Jesus into the world. But the kind of Christmas music that the world lifts before us I mean, tragically, it misses the point of why we celebrate Christmas to begin with. Now, my aim this morning, it's not to criticize the world out there, right? We shouldn't, as Christians, be surprised at how dark the darkness is. And so our goal today isn't to just take pot shots at what the world misses about Christmas. No, our aim this morning is is to consider what we might be missing about Christmas, Our aim this morning is to acknowledge that there is a way to celebrate Christmas, even among Christians, even inside the church, 
that fails to feel the weight of how and why Jesus came. Right? There's a way that we can celebrate Christmas that fails to feel the weight of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. There's a way to celebrate Christmas and even to celebrate Christ at Christmas that embraces the baby in a manger but fails to consider the trajectory of why that baby came to the manger in the first place. And there's a way to celebrate Christmas that is all too enamored by the shadow glories of tradition and sentiment and religion rather than the true glory of Emmanuel, God with us. And so my prayer for us this morning, my prayer that has been for us all week long as I've prepared for this morning and really this whole Advent season is that we wouldn't miss the weight of who Jesus is, that we wouldn't miss the weight of why Jesus came, that we would rightly reckon with the glory of Christ as it's revealed in Emmanuel, God with us. And so as we study Luke chapter two this morning, my prayer is that God would just reveal his glory more fully to us. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word, because your word is not about us. Your word is about you. It testifies to your glory and to your greatness. And that is the testimony that we need. We thank you for your son, because your son, though he came for us, he was ultimately not about us. He was about something greater. He was about bringing glory to your holy and precious name and leading us to rightly recognize that you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. We pray, Father, this morning that through your word, you would more fully reveal yourself, that we might understand better who you are, and that in response to who you are, we might worship you for who you are. We pray that in Jesus' holy and precious name today. Amen. So this Advent season here at Life Church, we've been walking through the songs that are sung in the Gospel of Luke in response to the news of the coming of Jesus into the world. And so two weeks ago, we look at Mary's song, which she sung when she learned the news that the Holy Spirit had inspired in her baby Jesus. Last week, we looked at the song that Zachariah sung when his son John was born into the world to announce the good news of the coming of Jesus into the world. And today, we're looking at the song that not one person, but that the heavenly host, the angels together sing on Christmas Eve above a field outside of Bethlehem so long ago. Their song, it's recorded for us in Luke 2 verse 14. It's the shortest of these songs that we're looking at. The angels, they appeared in the sky above and they sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And what I hope to lay before us this morning as we consider the story that leads up to that song and the song itself, I just want us to consider why. Why is God worthy of glory in the highest place? 
Why is he worthy of the worship of angels and shepherds and every single molecule in the universe? And so we're just going to walk through the story and along the way I'm going to point us to five reasons why it is right for the angels and for us to sing glory to God in the highest. The first reason that God is worthy of glory is because he sovereignly works in human history to accomplish his purposes and his plans. Let me show you this. Look now at chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. In those days, Luke tells us, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now what we need to understand is that a census in the ancient world was about one thing and one thing only, and that was money, right? Caesar Augustus, he wanted money. You got money through taxation, and so to speak, there was no taxation without tabulation. Caesar Augustus, he needed to know how many people he had in his vast empire so that he could know how much tax he should expect from his vast empire. And he wanted, of course, to make sure that not a dime too little came into his coffers. And so, Luke tells us, all went to be registered, each to his own town. And that includes, of course, a young, very pregnant virgin named Mary and her fiancé, Joseph. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now what we need to, the dots that we need to connect here are fairly simple, I think. Generations ago, God had declared that his Messiah would be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. But then in Luke chapter 1, as we read weeks ago, the Holy Spirit visited and then impregnated a young virgin from Nazareth named Mary. And so the question before us is, how does God move this young pregnant virgin named Mary, who has been conceived, whose child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, who holds the Messiah in her womb, how does God move this young woman from Nazareth, her hometown, to Bethlehem, the city of David? How did God work so that when Mary's time came, she would be in the perfect place at that perfect time? And the answer is, God did that exactly the way he does millions and millions of things in human history. He worked silently, subtly, yet sovereignly in the ordinary details of human life. He used, in this case, a census. He used taxes. He used the greedy desires of a pompous pagan emperor. And the thing that we should consider as we set our minds on that this morning is that we should never forget that in the end, all things bow to the sovereign will of God, right? All of the geopolitical forces and industrial complexes in the world, all of the economic forces and social structures, all things and all people, including emperors, bow to the sovereign will of God. In scripture alone, we see that Pharaoh of Egypt, Cyrus of Persia, 
Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and Caesar Augustus, just to name a few. Their wills ultimately bow to the sovereign will of God because he is in and through and in control of all things. This is how glorious the God of the Bible is. He uses anyone and anything necessary to accomplish his plans, including the egotistical whims of pagan rulers. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I would just say to us, especially as we sit here in 2020, as God's children, this is a great cause for us to rejoice. Because even still today, God turns the hearts of kings and chancellors and presidents and prime ministers to accomplish his work and his purpose in our world. We can rejoice because all things do bow to him in the end. And God is worthy of glory because he sovereignly works in all human history to accomplish his plans and his purposes. The second reason why Luke would tell us that God is worthy of glory is because God faithfully keeps all of his promises. Right, why? Did Mary need to deliver baby Jesus in that little town of Bethlehem? Well, the answer is because that's what God had promised would happen. He had promised that Messiah would be born in David's city, in Bethlehem. And God keeps all of his promises. That promise in particular comes in Micah chapter 5. The prophet Micah, he said, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So from ancient days, God has foretold the coming of his Messiah, and he said, Messiah will come in Bethlehem. When the Holy Spirit inspired Zechariah's song at the end of Luke chapter 1, that same promise was reiterated. Zechariah says, For God has raised up a horn for us in the house of his servant David. And so Zechariah, he echoes the fact that Messiah was to come from David's house, from David's family line, and that he was to be born in David's city in Bethlehem. And so that explains the significance of Luke's words here. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, who came from David's family, which meant that Jesus would be legally a descendant of David, he took Jesus' mother to the city of David so that Jesus, a descendant of King David, could be born in the city of David, just as God had promised. And so these verses, they also remind us that God does what he says he's going to do. Right? He keeps his promises, every single one of them. And I say that to us this morning, knowing that there will be times in our lives when we are tempted to believe that there is something more sure, more stable, more certain, more real, than the truth of what God has said to us in his word. We'll be tempted to believe that there's, there's something better to build our lives upon than the truths of scripture. 
that even the way the Lord brought his Messiah into the world confirms to us that that just simply can't be. There's nothing more sure, nothing more certain, nothing more real than the truth of what God has said that we can build our lives on. Now in my own life, the most dangerous temptation here is what I feel. Right, the thing that I am most tempted to build my life on aside from Scripture is what my heart tells me that I want. It's what my heart tells me that I desire. It's what my heart tells me is true. Right, and so the way I feel, like I will be sure that I know what is necessary to make me happy. The way that I feel, I will be sure that my emotions are a reliable platform to stand on. The way I feel, I will be sure that my heart is telling me what is true. I will be sure in a moment that the things that I want and desire are what is best for me. But the truth is that all of our emotions, all of our desires, all of our feelings, they are unstable and weak and fickle and ever-changing. And what I want tomorrow won't be what I want right now. And what I'm sure a year from now is good for me isn't what I'm sure is good for me right now in this moment. And so we need a foundation in life that never changes and that never fails and that is stable and solid and real. And only God's word can be that for us. Because only God's word endures beneath our feet. He is faithful every time to do what he has promised to do. His word is a sure and certain and stable and unchanging and unyielding foundation beneath us. We should give him glory for this. Thirdly, God is worthy of glory because of the utter humility that he displayed in coming to earth to save us. Let's keep reading now, verse six. Luke says, and while they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now to me, this is one of those dangerous moments where it would be very easy for us to kind of get lost in the traditional sentimentality of Christmas. Right, this image here of baby Jesus wrapped in a rag, placed in a manger, because there's no room in the inn. I mean, that's a, a familiar and a sentimental idea. We can't stay there. Right. What I want us to do this morning, I want us to grasp the glory of Jesus that is on display here, just in these two verses, because of the humility of Jesus that is on display in these two verses. And, and to get there, to do that, we simply need to remember who Jesus was at the very moment that this is happening and who Jesus still is today. 
Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And that, of course, does not mean that he was born first in creation because here we see him being born to a human mother who was, of course, born before him. When Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he means that Jesus is preeminent in creation. He ranks first in all of creation. And then Paul adds that it is in him and through him and by him that all things in creation exist exist. The Bible calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega. That means he is the beginning and the end. He was before all things and in him all things hold together and all things ultimately exist for him. He's creator and he is sustainer. He is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, which means if you want to know God, you look at Jesus. If you want to understand the character of God, you look to Jesus because Jesus reveals those things perfectly. Jesus, he is the second person of the divine trinity. He is the eternally existent, only begotten son of God. He is in his divine nature a being who shares the full perfection and power of God's triune being. And so this baby wrapped in a rag and laid in a manger is the all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful son of God. And the question that that begs The question that that demands is, what does he deserve when he's laid in that manger, right? What kind of reception is he worthy of when he's laid in that manger? And the answer is everything, right? Every person from every nation coming to worship him. Every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, coming to worship him, and even all creation itself, right? Rocks crying out to praise him, galaxies dancing for joy because the king has come and dwelled among us, right? He is God the Son, and anything less than absolute and complete worship is an utter and stunning travesty. That's the kind of reception that Jesus deserved, What kind of reception did he receive? While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Can you just feel the irony of that for a moment? Right, the one by whom the inn was created There's no room for him. And so he's laid in a feed trough in a barn, wrapped in a rag. What stunning humility Jesus demonstrates here. What stunning humility God in his triune being demonstrates to us here. And friends, it's not an accident that Jesus bursts onto the scene in these humble environs, right? The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud and he lifts up the humble. Mary herself, she has sung that God has brought down the mighty from their exalted thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate, right? It's not an accident that Jesus comes into the world in profound humility 
Because that humility, it foreshadows his life and especially his death. Right? The sufferings that commence here at his incarnation, they culminate in his crucifixion. Here, the God who is wrapped in swaddling cloths at his crucifixion will be wrapped in burial cloths, all because he came to, in humility, die and save us. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself so low to come for us, to live for us, and to die for us. He's worthy of glory because of that humility as he came to save us. Fourth this morning, God's worthy of glory because he saves lowly, needy people. People like us. Let's keep reading now. We're in verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That's the right response to the revelation of the glory of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord is shining around you, you should tremble in fear. And so these shepherds, they do. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now there's, there's so much here. We could, we could peel back so many layers here. Just, just a few things to point out briefly. First of all, look again at verse 10. This declaration, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is not okay news that will produce some joy for some people. This is not even good news that will produce great joy for a specific group of people at a specific point and place and time. No, this is good news of great joy for all people. It's such good news that it can produce great joy not for people living at one moment in time, not for people living in one generation, not for people living in one place, but it is good news that produces great joy for all people in history who respond to this good news in faith. And what is that good news? Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David. And listen to the three ways the angel describes Jesus. A savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a savior, a deliverer, a healer, the one who came to save us from our truest and deadliest affliction. He's the one who came to save us from our sin, paying the full penalty that our sin deserved, breaking the very power that sin had over us so that one day when he returns, we can be free completely from the presence of sin in our lives. Jesus is Savior. Jesus also, the angel says, is Christ. That means he's Messiah. He's the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He's the one through whom all of God's redemptive purposes and plans will find their fulfillment. 
right? All of the Old Testament promises, they're pointing to him. All of the New Testament seeks to explain him because Jesus is Christ. He's Messiah. He is the one, the point, the center of everything. And he's Lord, the angel says. It means he's sovereign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When the prophet Isaiah said there's one who's going to come and the government's going to be on his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Isaiah was talking about him because he's Lord. In Jesus all things hold together. He's before all things. He's in all things. In him all things live and move and have their being. Jesus is Lord of all. And that is incredibly good news. We could just celebrate that this morning, but what I want to point out to you still is I want you to notice the way that Luke emphasizes who this news is first declared to. Look back again in verses 10 through 12. The angel said to them, to this bunch of shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you, for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See, Luke, he's emphasizing the fact that the very first people who heard the good news that brings great joy for all people are this bunch of shepherds hanging out in a field outside of Bethlehem one night. Now again, that's the kind of thing that gets sentimentalized at Christmas, right? I mean, the shepherds, they're in your nativity scene, right? You think about them, you sing about them, right? We, we know that the shepherds are a part of the story, but like if we really wrestled with that, even that would stun us, I think. See, shepherds in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, I mean, that was one of the lowest, most despicable professions that you could have. Basically, you were a shepherd only if you couldn't get a job mopping the floor at McDonald's. I mean, it's just not a job that anybody wanted to have. Why not? Well, shepherds, they had to live outside of the city, and they had to be surrounded by sheep, animals, which meant that it was impossible for shepherds to maintain ceremonial cleanness, As a result of that, according to the Jewish law, shepherds, they couldn't worship with God's people. They were always ritual outsiders, right? They couldn't gather with God's people when God's people assembled to worship him because they were unclean. Because of that and the social stigma that was attached to that, again, just nobody wanted to be a shepherd. There were no little boys growing up who said, man, I really hope I can be a shepherd one day. It was the last resort. And so the kinds of people who took jobs as shepherds, they were thieves and scoundrels generally. Shepherds, their testimony was not admissible in a court of law because basically nobody trusted the word of shepherds. Which is why Luke is so deliberate in pointing out to us that God is so deliberate in first revealing to shepherds the good news that brings great joy for all people who receive it in faith. Right, God didn't show up and announce this good news to people who were impressive. 
He didn't show up and announce this good news to people that everybody trusted. He didn't show up and announce this good news to people that everybody looked up to. He didn't show up and announce this good news to people who were rich and powerful. No, he showed up and announced this good news to a ragtag group of people who smelled like sheep and who nobody trusted and nobody believed. And I point that out this morning, friends, because we should never, ever think that significance or accomplishment are the keys to God's affection. We should never, ever think that we need to be a big deal in order for God to use us in incredible ways. We should never think that God is waiting for us to get our acts together before he unleashes his love and his affection on us. We should never think that God's heart for us or our significance in his eyes is in some way tied to how awesome we are because the truth is those things are tied only to how awesome God is. Right? God loves us not because he thinks that we're impressive. God loves us because his love is impressive. God loves us not because he thinks that we're awesome. He loves us because he himself is awesome and he is eager to unleash his awesome love on all who understand that they need it. And that's why he first revealed good news of great joy to a bunch of lowly, needy people. People like us. And that is why he's worthy of glory. Fifth this morning. God's worthy of glory because he's revealed his true character with perfect clarity in Jesus. As we finish these couple of verses, we see that one angel is joined by a multitude of angels. Not a few angels, not a hundred angels even perhaps, but like so many angels that they can't be counted. Luke says in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and here's the song again, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so this is the third Christmas carol in Luke's gospel. Mary's song, Zechariah's song, now the angel's song. This one is different though, isn't it? Those songs, they rose from earth to heaven. This song, it comes from heaven to earth. Those songs, Mary's songs, Zechariah's songs, they were new songs in response to what God has done. Mary sings a new song in response to the Holy Spirit conceiving a child in her womb. Zechariah, he sings a new song in response to the birth of John the Baptist. But the angel song, friends, it is not a new song in response to some new thing that God has done. Now the angel song is a song that began before the foundation of the earth. It's a song that began before eternity passed indeed. It's a song that has always been sung and it's a song that always will be sung. These angels, they bring this song of glory to the earth because the Lord of glory comes to earth. In this moment, it's like God peels back the sky so that we can see into heaven and witness what has always been happening for all eternity. And that is the angels around his throne singing 
glory to God and the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased because now God has peeled back the sky and descended from heaven to live and dwell among us. And in living and dwelling among us, he fully reveals his glory. He fully reveals what he is like. And so we're no longer wondering who is God really. We can see who God really is in the face of Jesus. The Lord of glory has come to live and dwell among us. And so it's appropriate that the song of glory sung to the Lord of glory for all eternity comes as well. Because in coming to earth, Jesus, he puts on perfect display the perfect glory of our God. Right In his incarnation, we see the perfect love and humility and compassion of our God for us. In his teaching, we, we see the perfect wisdom and goodness of our God. In his crucifixion, we witness the perfect righteousness and justice and wrath and grace of our God. In his resurrection, we witness the perfect power and strength and purpose of our God. See, it's in Jesus as Emmanuel that all that God is is displayed for us. His perfections are perfectly revealed to us in Jesus. And so because Jesus is absolute glory, the angels come down to They're proclaiming, this is the one. This is the one who's worthy of all praise. This is the Lord of glory. And brothers and sisters, that's the truth that I pray that you will consider deep in your hearts this Christmas. Right, as we're tempted to treasure lesser glories, as we're tempted to find joy in worldly things that can never satisfy us, as we're tempted to worship what is created rather than our glorious creator. This Christmas, consider the song of the angels and consider the glorious one that they sing of. Their song, it is an unending declaration of the worth and glory of Jesus. It began before the foundation of the earth. It came from heaven to earth on that Christmas Eve. Their song, it continues today. Every time the people of God gather to sing of God's good news that brings great joy, right, this glory song, it continues. And it's a song that will continue for eternity if we are among the redeemed. Right, the multitude that gathers now around the throne of Jesus, they continue to sing this song. That multitude will grow and swell as history progresses and it will increase again when the Lord returns in glory. And like the saints who are presently around the throne of Jesus, we will one day sing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. It's just on and on and on into eternity that that song echoes. And one day, if we've trusted in the good news that brings great joy to all the people, our voices will be added 
to that multitude for eternity. With the angels and with the saints of old, we will sing that song of glory. But you know, you don't have to wait for eternity. You can sing it today. You can join today in worshiping the glorious Lord of all things. And I say that to you, especially if you're with us this morning, either in the room or online, and you don't consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus. I just beg you to consider the Lord of glory and to join us now in singing the song that we will sing for eternity. And if you're a believer with us in the room or online, I just implore you to this Christmas and with every single day of your life, reflect consider upon and display the magnificent glory of Jesus in a life of worship. So let us add our voices to this song of glory and let us live our lives for this Lord of glory. Pray with me. Jesus, we praise you because you're worthy of praise. That's the right response to who you are. That's the right response to what you have done. That is the right response to your character, to your goodness, to the way you have worked in all of history to save each of us if we are your children, to redeem for yourself a people, and to gather an eternal worship service. You're worthy, Lord. May we consider that and be changed by that this Christmas and for eternity. I pray that in your name. Amen.